0: The following is a message recorded during the morning worship service at Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, please visit our website at vbcmt.org. Well, in verses 14 and 15 of this passage, Mark presented us really the central thread to Jesus' preaching ministry. Jesus came as a preacher. And he preached that men everywhere would repent and believe the gospel. Those are the commands. Each of us are to repent, to turn from our sins, turn from our own selfish pursuits, and simultaneously believe in the gospel. That is really the entry point into the Christian life. That is where we all begin. Faith and repentance are, we could say, the turnstile which we all must pass through in order to enter the kingdom of God. And in verses 14 and 15, this is the announcement that is made, this declaration about the starting place of the Christian life. And with Christ's arrival, the kingdom of God has come. But then it's as if, in verses 16 and following, it's as if Mark zooms out from the entry point, from that beginning place, and he begins to paint a picture for us of the Christian life through various snippets and carefully chosen extracts from the life uh, and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, we learn more about the Christian life, this call to discipleship that we're all called down. We learn what it means to be a follower of Christ. We learn more about what it means to be a Christian. We understand more about what, what the costs are, or the costs associated with following Christ. We understand what the demands are. And I think we ought to have a cleared clear-eyed vision as to what the Christian life exactly is. You see, it's, a, it's possible to have an, an entirely false con- conception of what the Christian life is or what it means to be a Christian. In fact, we might even be following a Christ of our own imagination, a Christ that does not correspond with the Christ of Scripture. And also, our conception of what it means to be a Christian could be badly misconstrued. Our goal is to follow the one true Christ and to walk in his steps and to follow his example and equally important to follow his clear teaching. We need to let him dictate to us the terms of what it means to be a Christian, to let let him set the standard for the Christian life. And so in Mark's recording of the life of Christ, in Mark's gospel, to begin to develop this paradigm about the Christian life or the life of discipleship, Mark first turns to the calling of four men. Mark wants us to consider the account of Jesus calling these four particular men, these men who would become Jesus's inner circle, the closest four of the twelve, and the four that would go on to play a foundational role in the life of the church. Obviously, they play a major storyline in just the life of Christ altogether. We need to know these men, but we also need to know these men just to understand more about Christ and his teaching, to understand the mission that Christ has really called us all to. So these, we might say, are the first disciples of Christ. And these disciples would go on to make other disciples of Christ, And those disciples of Christ would go on to make other disciples of Christ in an ongoing chain that really comes down to us today. We are disciples who others have made into disciples and now we are making other disciples. So the calling of these four men into the Christian life or into ministry is a fruitful paradigm for us to consider. We can learn from them and from their calling. As disciples of Christ, this is the life that we have all embraced. And this is the life that we invite, that we summon others down. Again, I remind you of 2 Timothy three sixteen and 7, which informs us that we should expect every passage in Scripture to equip us for ministry. Every passage in Scripture ought to be used to help us be more faithful in ministry, so far as we rightly understand it and faithfully appropriate it into our lives so that is the goal here today to immerse ourselves in the account of jesus calling two sets of brothers into discipleship and then to yield ourselves to the holy spirit's work of teaching us and challenging our current life of discipleship we always ought to be desiring for the scriptures to challenge our current status quo if you will to challenge our current discipleship, our current following of Christ. So this morning, let us pay careful attention to the the contours of this historical account that happened 2,000 years ago. And Mark brings us to the Sea of Galilee. That's the setting here, the Sea of Galilee. It was a a large, or it is a large kidney-shaped inland lake. We might call it a sea, but really it's a lake. It was... It is 13 miles long, six miles wide. This body of water is really a critical setting in the Gospels for many of the accounts that we find, many of the events in Jesus' life. To the north of the Sea of Galilee sits Mount Hermon, and there snow runoff runs down the Jordan River Valley, descending deep below sea, vo- sea level, actually, 680 feet to the surface of the Sea of Galilee, or or the lake of Galilee, you might call it. And in Jesus' day, the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, if you can picture it as a line, functioned as the sea and the Jordan River functioned as the, as the edge of the region that was uh, Judea, or that was Galilee. That was the Galilean region or province with that edge, the eastern edge besetting there and the western edge being about 20 miles inland. This is the region of Galilee where much of Jesus' life occurs. If we think of Nazareth, Jesus's hometown village was in this region of Galilee. And so was Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. And so was other cities like Tiberias and Chorazin and Capernaum, which would become, Capernaum would become the base of really Jesus's ministry. If we think more about this region, Galilee, this province, if we think about the the, the population there, most Galileans would have been described as maybe what we might call the working poor. They, They were the peasant class that made up this region. Galileans suffered under a heavy tax burden and were largely uh, overlooked by the local government that was propped up by Rome. The majority of people or laborers in this area would have sought out jobs in agricultural fields, as well as, as we'll see, on fishing boats. This lake, the Sea of Galilee, has long supported a thriving fishing industries. And we know that only wealthy families were able to obtain the costly fishing rights or access to that sea in Jesus' day. And then those wealthy owners would then sublease or sublet to locals who could then fish off of their account, so to speak. But if we consider this population as a whole, from the perspective of those who lived in the south, in the region of Judea, the Galileans were regarded as second-rate or second-class citizens. One historian noted that Judeans scorned Galileans as rural, unsophisticated, and religiously suspect. I think that's an interesting phrase. Galileans were seen as unsophisticated, rural, religiously suspect, sort of country bumpkins up in the north compared to the sophisticated class who lived in the city around Jerusalem or in that area, Judea. And not only would the Lord choose, or God the Father, choose to have his son, Jesus, birthed in this region of Galilee. But interestingly, this was the the region that most of the 12 disciples came from. In fact, all but one came from Galilee. There was only one disciple who came from Judea, and interestingly, that was Judas Iscariot. The rest of the men came from this region of second-class, religiously suspect people, Galileans. And on the shore of this sea, or this lake known as Galilee, this is where we find this calling of the first four, two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew, and then James and John. And look again at verse 16 with me. Look in your Bibles at verse 16 to catch this setting here. And as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. So these are the first two disciples that Mark presents to us. We are perhaps most familiar with Simon. Jesus will nickname him Peter. Andrew was definitely the lesser-known brother of the two. Later, we'll be introduced to James and John, and those four will make up the dominant foursome of the twelve disciples. Andrew, although he's ordinarily in the background behind other more dominant personalities like his brother— Andrew is still often listed among, or alongside these three other popular disciples, with Simon, again, being the unquestionable leader and spokesperson for the group. John chapter 1, verse 44 tells us that these two brothers were from a Galilean village called Bethsaida. Several verses later, in Mark's account, we learn that Simon and, Egypt, Simon and Andrew shared a house in Capernaum. So at some point, the brothers, perhaps along with their father, moved from Bethsaida to Capernaum to live. Which, of course, Capernaum was was located right on the Sea of Galilee. And as Mark tells us, these two brothers were fishermen. That that is the work that they were engaged in. And Jesus sees these two men as they're casting or throwing out nets. They were were using what we call today cast nets or casting nets. Nets. This is a type of net that's still commonly used today. I've never used one myself, but uh, I know that they are still used. Fishermen, I'm sure, use them and would be aware of them. But in Scripture, there's two types of nets that are described. The first is this particular kind of net. It's this casting net, this net that you throw. As the name suggests, you would heave it out, and it would be a circular shape that would fall in a circular Sort of region on the water, and then the edge of the net would have weighted perimeter that would sink down to the ground. You would throw it out in shallow water, entrapping any fish that was under it. And then with a rope, you could pull it back in, enclosing fish, and then heaving them back to. Uh, inland or back to shore. And, and catching fish this way would certainly require skill. I mean, heaving these heavy nets out in such a way that they would expand properly in a circle, then trapping the fish and then pulling them back in time. And then you can imagine again, fixing the net, pulling out fish, pulling out debris, then preparing it and throwing it out again. It would have been tiresome work. And success in catching fish would have depended on one's skill and familiarity with the trade the other type of net used in jesus's day is what is called the the drag net or we might call it a sweep net a drag net is suspended on the top edge of the water or sitting on the the top of the water with floats and then runs like a, a curtain down to the floor of the sea or the lake floor and nets are then dragged through the water, catching whatever happens to be in their way. You could imagine if one end was secured to the bank, then it would be hauled out and dragged in a semicircular shape, catching everything in its wake and then pulling it to shore. That was what is called a, a drag net. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, uses... An analogy to depict the great sorting that will occur at the end of the age as the, as the wicked are so, are sorted out from the righteous. And as we'll see in a moment, it seems that James and John were using a dragnet, while Simon and Andrew were using casting nets. And Jesus interprets them or interrupts them as they're engaged in this work. They're, they're, there they are casting out their nets. And look at verse 17. This is what Jesus says to them. He says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The command or the phrase, follow me, might not be anything special to us, but it is unique. It's full of significance. It was a Greek idiom. It was a set phrase that communicated something intentional. The, The phrase technically has no verb, It just points to a location. It's like, here, behind me. It would be a rough way to translate it. But it was a common phrase that had a special significance for the disciple's relationship to his teacher. When we couple this phrase with the word to follow in verse 18 and 20, the the meaning really becomes unquestionable. Jesus was summoning these men to a culturally understood relationship he was summoning them to discipleship. Typically, the norm would have been for teachers or rabbis to have multiple disciples at one time. But unlike the normal rabbinical process of the student or the disciple pursuing a teacher, pursuing a rabbi, here Jesus invites the men. That's not normal. He invites them to follow. Also, the rabbis typically instructed their disciples in the law, that they would teach them the law of God, God's word, we might say, but that's not what Jesus says. He says, follow me. Jesus will instruct them in the ways of Christ, in the teachings of himself, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were called to come behind him in tutelage. So this was a call to what we might think of as like a full-time apprenticeship for Andrew and Simon. And yet the call upon these two men is not that different than the call that we all receive in coming to Jesus. I think this is what Mark would have us understand. He would like us to see in their calling the call that comes to all of us. For an example of this, just consider with me Mark chapter 8. Turn over there in your Bible to Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. And look who Jesus addresses here in this passage. Mark chapter 8 verse 34 and he summoned the crowd with his disciples so the crowd is there and also his disciples and he said to them if anyone if anyone at all wishes to come after me similar language come after me he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me here we have the similar language of come after and also of follow in verse 34, as we saw in Mark, Mark chapter 1. This is the call going out to anyone who would be a follower of Christ. Anyone, we might say, who might consider becoming a Christian. Well, we could say that this is an invitation to anyone who might consider becoming a Christian or just consider joining Christianity, if we might say. And note the demands of Christ. Note the cost Of discipleship. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words. And this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father and his holy angels. So this is a call to discipleship. Jesus says here, look, you must radically deny yourself. This is a a radical call to yield your life and the control of your life up to another. Give your life in service to Christ. In fact, be willing to die for him. If, If you want to save your life, which certainly would have connotations of saving from sin, penalty for sin, you must lose it. That that is the call he makes. It's true of every Christian. We must embrace Christ and his words, interestingly, without shame in this adulterous and sinful generation. That described Jesus's generation then, and it describes our generation today. That is what it means to be a Christian. That's the call to discipleship. So Backing up in Mark chapter 1, we could say that Jesus is calling Simon and Andrew to, to something unique. It is a, 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 a unique apprenticeship for while Jesus was on the earth, these men would follow him for a season. But there's a parallel in this call, this call going out to Simon and Andrew, that really reflects our own call to discipleship and what it means to be a Christian. There's a similarity in the demand placed upon all of our lives What Jesus demanded from them is the same thing he demands from us. In verse 17, Jesus said that he would make Simon and Andrew into fishers of men. This describes what their future profession would be. This would be the central purpose of of their lives. Moving forward, they would be catching or fishing for men. And no doubt, training would be needed for this new profession and training they would soon receive and much like their previous profession required skill in preparing the nets and casting the nets and hauling fish in so would this new profession of catching fish catching men or fishing for men they would soon be sent out by Jesus on short-term preaching expeditions to really teach them and to hone their skills. They would walk in Jesus's steps to, to learn from him. Now, Jesus was seeking to prepare them for a life of fishing for men, but their occupation necessarily would be transformed. They would still, their work would still involve fishing to some sense, but the object would now be different. Rather than fishing for aquatic life, they would now be fishing for human life. They were to be fishers of men, meaning they were to be seeking out to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That was their goal. They were to fish for men and notably not to entertain men. That was not their profession, not even to heal men, not to empower men, not to pamper man and his carnal desires, but to make them disciples of Christ, to fish for them, to catch them. And I think as we consider this, this calling placed upon them, I think we have to ask ourselves, when Jesus called Simon and Andrew to be fishers of men, did Jesus intend that in order to be a disciple of Christ, does it require fishing for men? In other words, Fundamentally, is a disciple of Christ a fisher of men? I mean, think about that question. Is part and parcel what it means of being a disciple of Christ? Does it include fishing for men? To the degree that if you said, I will not fish for men, then you're saying, I will not be a disciple of Christ. That that is the question. Is a Christian a fisher of men? Must a Christian fish for men? Is fishing part and parcel to being a disciple of Christ, fishing for men? Or is it just an optional add-on to the Christian life? Might, Might some special class of Christians also fish for men, or is it what we all do? I think that's an important question that we have to ask. Yes, it was true that Simon and Andrew, and later James and John, were fishermen, So it's particularly fitting for Jesus to call them into a lifetime of fishing for men. That that makes sense. But I would argue that if we examine the biblical data as a whole, then yes to our question. We would answer yes. Fishing for men is essential to being a Christian. It's essential to the role that what Jesus calls us all into. In other words, fishing for men is not optional for the disciple of Christ. You say, well, how can you say that? Well, consider with me three arguments. I'll give you three arguments. One, consider the Great Commission. Jesus commands all of his followers at the end of the Gospel of Matthew to make disciples of all the nations. In other words, Jesus calls them to engage in the work of seeking to make disciples. That sounds a lot like fishing for men to me. So we are called to make disciples, or fish for men. And then again, that's an address to every believer. We're all called to to the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. Or as another example, consider 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20. It's that well-known passage where Paul refers to himself and the entire church of Corinth as ambassadors for Christ. He says, We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is what Paul was saying to them. Look, we are ambassadors for Christ, and we beg people to be reconciled to God. So if if that was true for the church in Corinth, which, by the way, was a sinful, disobedient, disordered church, if Paul still linked up with them and said, we are ambassadors for Christ, well, then certainly it should be true of every church and true of us today. All Christians are ambassadors for Christ. We are sent out on behalf of Christ to herald a message. Or another argument, consider 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9. Here, Peter addresses persecuted Christians, and he says this to them. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Understand this passage. Peter here refers to Christians as, as God's set-apart people, chosen, made into a special priesthood, united as one in Christ, and he did this so that we might proclaim a message. He, he saved us so that we would be proclaimers, that we would be heralders of a particular message, proclaiming the excellency of him who's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So again, I say yes fishing for men is part of the required job description for every christian yes we could say some christians will certainly be more gifted in evangelism and be more equipped in fishing for men but that doesn't mean the ungifted ones unequipped ones don't get a pass or something as if they can just keep their pole and their fishing tackle on the shelf never using it that that doesn't work We all must be engaged in fishing for men. Fishing for men is what Christians do, and all of them, to a man, to a woman. This is the work that we are called to do, fish for men. Indeed, I would say it should be considered really what a professing Christian must be engaged in. And if a Christian says, I have no desire to fish for men, I don't want to do that work. I actually, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to talk to people about Christ. I don't really care to influence anyone for Christ. I would say we should be concerned about where they're truly at with Christ. It should concern us when someone says, I do not want to fish for men. That's problematic because, again, this is just what a Christian does. We make disciples. We talk to others about Christ. We influence others for Christ. Christians and and unbelievers as well. We're influencing people for Christ all the time. Sure, we'd say it's hard. I don't think any of us naturally loves to get up and, and talk to people about Christ. I think we'd all love to keep to ourselves. It's hard work, but nonetheless, this is our job description. This is what we do. We make disciples. We must be Faithful. And and indeed when we are faithless in this regard, that should bother us and it should motivate us into more obedience to Christ. At the end of the day, evangelism or fishing for men is simply a matter of obedience. So in verse 17 of Mark chapter one, when Jesus said to Simon and Andrew, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men, or I'll make you fishers of men, we should hear the reverberations of that of Jesus' Call upon them down to us today. and Note their response. I think it's important. Look at verse 18. Look how they responded. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Mark's favorite word shows up here, immediately. Characteristically, Mark uses this term to transition uh, in events in the storyline along. Typically, it doesn't have a temporal meaning, But here it seems that Mark is meaning this to respond as we might typically use this word. He's saying they responded at once. Immediately they moved. They dropped their nets upon Jesus' invitation. Perhaps we could imagine their nets left there floating in the water. Or perhaps they piled them in the boat and they, they just left following Jesus. But it seems that Mark is stressing to us the details here of their particular response Jesus said follow me and they got in line they were struck by Jesus's call and then they moved out he called and they went which was the appropriate response when the long-expected Messiah invites you to follow him as one of his disciples naturally you go and that is of course if you understand who this Messiah is who, who he was But this brings us to an important detail in this account. The way that Mark presents everything here, we might naturally assume that this was the first encounter these men had with Jesus. But that is not the case. Simon and Andrew were already quite familiar with Jesus at this point. The Gospel of John actually makes this clear. Turn with me over there to John chapter 1. I want you to see this. A couple books to the right. John chapter 1. John gives us information about the relationship Simon and Andrew already had with Jesus. In fact, we learn that Simon and Andrew were men who were quite religiously minded. Uh, They were fishermen, yes, but they were religiously minded fishermen. And Andrew himself, in fact, had been a disciple of John the Baptist previously. Look at John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35. Verse 35. Again, the next day... John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. So here, John the Baptist directs two of his disciples to follow Christ. Uh, John's role, as you know, was to prepare the way for Christ. So when Christ came, John pointed him out, said, There he is, behold, look, that's the Lamb of God. And his disciples took the cue and they left. Look at verse 38 then. And when Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two disciples who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So Andrew, we learn here, was a formal disciple of John the Baptist who is turned here into a disciple of Christ. Note that he had found the Messiah and therefore he recruits his brother. Look at verse 41. He, f- he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated means Christ. Here we find Peter's, or Simon's, uh, the application of his nickname by Christ. We'll continue in verse 42. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is Translated meaning Peter. So John doesn't really shed any more light on this event, but here these disciples are. They're one of them, Andrew's, John's disciples. He's transitioned over into following Jesus. He finds Jesus. He knows he's the Messiah. He recruits his brother. So they're both then staying with him for a season, at least one night. And John doesn't shed any more light on this, but apparently there was a season of following Christ already. And Peter and Andrew then, at some point, went back to their profession. They went back to fishing. Perhaps at Jesus' Jesus's encouragement. Perhaps Jesus said, okay, men, time to go back to your work and go back to your lives. Or perhaps they needed to work and they had to take care of the family business, and so they went back. It's unclear, but for some reason, they went back to their profession. Whatever the case was, by the time Jesus walked on the Galilean shoreline and called him, they already had a settled opinion about this Christ. They believed he was the Messiah. They had followed him before and had learned about him, and now he was calling them into a full-time apprenticeship. It would have been one thing if Jesus sort of strolled past these men had never seen them before and had sort of a heavenly Aurora about them and they just saw Jesus sort of mystically moving along the seaside and he called them and they kind of rapidly came and followed him that would be interesting but that obviously wasn't the case here Jesus was a man and his appearance was quite normal Isaiah 53 tells us that he had no stately appearance there was nothing unusual about his appearance and yet they knew who he was he was the Messiah. He, he was the real deal. He, he was it. And so they left everything and followed him. And I think this is interest, interesting to note. I mean, imagine it's easy to follow a leader from afar. It's easy, it's easy to be a fan of someone you hardly know. But the closer you get to someone, the more you naturally see their flaws. It's, it's easy to have an inflated view of someone until you spend significant personal time with them. And after close time with him, you see their flaws, you see their personal foibles, their sinful proclivities. But obviously there was none of that with Jesus. And so even after a season of close proximity, Andrew and Simon knew that Jesus was the real deal. And thus when they called, they were going. When he called, they left. And so it's interesting that Mark doesn't give us this background information and Mark chapter 1. He doesn't mention anything about Andrew and Simon's earlier learning from Christ or meeting Christ. Knowing, though, however, that Mark was accustomed to sitting under Peter himself, he had heard the preaching of Peter many times. Mark, as a young man, as the gospel writer, was very familiar with Peter's preaching ministry. Certainly, he would have known about the moment that Peter first met Christ. But it seems that Mark is not interested in giving us that detail for whatever reason. It seems that Mark is most interested in just showing us this response of these men. The response is that they dropped everything. And again, when the Messiah calls, that's what you do. When the Messiah calls, you go. And that is Mark's emphasis. So with the coming of Christ, the kingdom of God had drawn near, and when the king of the kingdom says, follow me, become my student, there's no point in doing anything else but immediately responding in obedience. This is what happens with Andrew and Simon. And this brings us to the second pair of brothers. If you would turn back over to Mark, if you're not there already, we consider now the second pair of brothers. Look at verse 19. Going on a little further, he saw James the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending their nets. Jesus now moves further up the shoreline. I imagine now Simon and Andrew are in tow behind Jesus, and they encounter another fishing vessel. And here we're introduced to James and John. Because James's name, is always, are usually listed first, that's commonly the case in scripture, it seems likely that James was the eldest brother. They were sons of a man named Zebedee. This man, Zebedee, apparently is a prominent figure or was a prominent figure in Jesus' day. It's interesting, his name is mentioned 12 times in the Gospels. And as such, it seems that he was a man of stature within the community, a man who knew some level of financial success. And he had achieved a significant level of notoriety. Perhaps it was because of Zebedee's well-known status that in the, his status in the community that his son John was able to gain special access into the court of the very high priest on the night before Jesus died. That's in John 18 verse 15. And that would mean that this Galilean Zebedee was known even far down in Jerusalem in the high priest's court. So again, this is an influential Man, And I don't think we could say uh, that James and John were poor. These two men, sons of Zebedee, would have been a family of wealth. They would have been better off than most. According to Luke's gospel in chapter 5, verse 10, these two sets of brothers were partners in their fishing business. So this was one large fishing operation. These were not two competing outfits. They were just... They were working together, just spread out over the shoreline. And this one operation would soon be without four of its employees. Being that Zebedee was a man of means, it seems that he likely owned the boat. And that is where we find James and John sitting. They're they're sitting in the boat when Jesus encounters them. And this would have been no little rowboat. This would have been a regular fishing vessel equipped with sails and rowing oars. James and John are found there restoring or mending their nets. This likely indicates that they were using dragnets. Dragnets could be several hundred feet long and such Nets required significant maintenance, including the washing of the nets, the spreading and drying of nets, uh, the making of repairs in the nets. And perhaps here, James and John were preparing these nets, getting ready to use them as they had done on thousands of other occasions. But today was different. Look at verse 20. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Note here the use of the word immediately again. This is how Mark typically uses this word. It just keeps the plot line moving, Mark's shifting scenes. This time, Mark simply reports that Jesus called them. He called them. I think we'd rightly assume that he said something similar to James and John as he said to Simon and Andrew, something like, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. But he, all he says is he called them. And they left their father and his boat, and now they left their former profession behind. Zebedee was left there with the hired men. The fact that Mark mentions these hired men being there is a unique detail. None of the other Gospels note that, but it's, and again, an indication of Zebedee's wealth. He was, Zebedee was left there in the boat with the hired men. And they went away to follow him, the text says in verse 20. So they became disciples of Christ. They took Jesus up on this offer of apprenticeship or this call to apprenticeship. But we'd have to acknowledge that leaving your father in the boat and leaving your family business behind in such a dramatic fashion would certainly strike us even today as odd and perhaps a bit disrespectful. Disrespectful. God's people are commanded to honor their father and mother. In a non-canonical book called Sirach, a religious work that sort of had proverbs taken from God's word, had one that said this in Sirach 3.16, Whoever forsakes a father is like a blasphemer. So that would have been a well-known proverb of their day that to forsake your father is to be like a blasphemer it would have been a it would have been considered sinful to abandon your father and the family business in such a way as he's engaged in the work and for Jesus to give such a demand from the shoreline as they're engaged in work this comes across as a bit of a wild totalitarian demand get behind me come follow now but they obeyed Jesus's call Because, again, Jesus is worthy of such submission. Again, this is what Jesus demanded, this type of drop everything obedience and follow me. And again, this is the same thing he demands of us today. It's an all-out surrender to Christ. Make him the king of your life. Submit to him. Deny yourself. Follow him. Put aside your preferences. Put aside your desires. Put aside your own thoughts of how things should be and how you ought to be. And just follow him. Submit to his word. Flip over to Mark chapter 10. We see more of this cost of discipleship in the we might call the the familial implications of following Christ. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Note Jesus' response. Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So note here that the expectation for all of Jesus' disciples is to suffer loss. And the loss here comes in the forms of houses, loss in the form of familial relationships. He mentions brothers, sisters, loss of, uh, of mothers, fathers, even giving up your own children. That is when you, when you prefer to follow Christ, even against the will and desires of your own children. He said we even should expect loss in terms of estates, farms, wealth, you will have to lose that in following Christ. Be willing to sacrifice everything. So James and John in Mark chapter 1 are really doing what's appropriate. They understood the implications of the call of Christ upon their life. They understood the cost of discipleship. They gave up everything and submitted to this call of discipleship. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 20, it ends with that phrase, they went away to follow him. They became disciples of Christ. And, and if you're a Christian sitting here today, so have you. You have become a disciple of Christ. That's who you are. You are a disciple of Christ. Christ called, he placed a call upon your life, and you answered in submission to Christ as your Lord. Again, I remind you of Mark 8.34. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Be, be willing to suffer the loss of your life, be willing to be executed for me. Jesus adds, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake, he is the one who will save it. Again, that's what it just means to be a Christian. You've lost everything else. You've given up everything else to follow Christ. He becomes Lord of your life. And he adds then, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's what you don't want, for the Son of Man to come back and for him to be ashamed of you because you weren't willing to make a stand for Christ and his words in our time here on the earth, in our life now. This is the cost of discipleship, or what it means to be a Christian, to surrender in obedience to Christ. And if we just pull back from a moment after considering this passage in these verses, we just think about Mark's presentation here. In verse 15, the kingdom of God has been announced, and now Jesus is out gathering followers. He's establishing a community of disciples. We see the first four who come in. And this group would certainly be described as a repentant group who's believed in the gospel because that's the requirements given in verse 15. Repent and believe the gospel. So... Here are the first four repentant believers who are coming to Christ. Jesus is forming his inner circle here. And I think as we draw back, we note two themes that become prominent in this passage, two themes that we've already been touching on. First is this call to discipleship. Although the call here is addressed only to these four, it is presented in a way that it becomes a pattern for every potential believer— For those who would come to Christ, there's a necessary parting from your old life. There's a necessary turning from sin, a repentance, and trusting in Christ, embracing Christ, and embracing his words. And in this passage, as we work through it, the demand actually escalates. Peter and Andrew leave their nets. They left their profession and their possessions behind. But James and John seem to give a little bit more They leave their nets and their father. So they gave up possessions, profession, and their family. They gave up more. So This is, is again, just the trajectory or the sort of theme of what it means to be a disciple of Christ is that we give up, we surrender, we suffer loss for the sake of Christ. Again, this is the call of discipleship. It's the, the very same call that's placed upon all of our lives. It's the call that we initially submit to when we come to Christ for the first time, when we surrender to him, we say, yes, you're the Lord of my life. I'm denying myself. I'm taking up my cross. But it's also the, really the daily call that we all face to say, am I willing to submit to Christ here and now? When he gives me a command, whatever it may be, when he commands me to, make disciples, am I willing to submit to that command here today? Or when he calls me to not let any unwholesome thing come out of my mouth, do I submit to do do that and obey that command? Whatever it may be, the cost of discipleship is that we surrender in obedience to the commands of Christ. Will we submit to Christ in every realm? And this brings us to maybe the second theme of this passage, which is the sovereign authority of Christ. This passage is dominated by Jesus' call to absolute obedience and absolute surrender. Jesus' overwhelming presence here and his authority demands a response. Throughout this gospel, Jesus' words carry divine authority. And this might be the first place we see it. He speaks and the disciples come. They move out. Other places, when Jesus speaks, demons flee. In other places, he speaks and storms are are ceased, or Jesus will speak, and diseases will be immediately healed, or, or Jesus will speak, and critics will be silenced. Jesus speaks and acts with the very authority of God. And so the appropriate response to Christ, then, is just absolute submission. He has absolute sovereign authority, and we give him absolute submission. His authority demands that. So for the disciple of Christ, when Jesus calls us to fish for men, we fish for men. And when Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, we deny ourselves. And when he calls us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What, whatever he calls us to do is what we do. When he calls us to freely forgive, we freely forgive others. Whatever com- Christ commands us to do as disciples of Christ We obey just like these four fishermen did on that day. Perhaps here this morning you're you're hearing this and you're considering Christ's command upon your life to follow him for the first time. Perhaps for the first time ever, you're looking at this and you're hearing, Jesus demands my absolute submission, my absolute absolute all-out just surrendering of my life to Christ. And, And if you're contemplating that decision, may I just urge you, Submit to Christ. And that means repent of your sin, deny yourself, and follow Christ. That is absolutely what you must do. Otherwise, you will lose your life in the end. You will lose your life for all eternity. To save it, you must come under Christ's authority. You must believe in the gospel, trust in his death on your behalf, and repent of your sins. For the first time, I would say, please submit to Christ and follow him, just like these four Fishermen did on that day. That's what you must do. And for those of us who are in Christ, maybe if I could leave us with one note. Again, here, the command or the words of Jesus says, He will make us fishers of men. And that's what we are. As Christians, we are fishing for men. And I think we need to evaluate in our own lives have we been faithful to that? Are we faithfully making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? How are you doing at fishing for men? Could someone look at your life and see efforts to fish for men, to, to make an impact for Christ, to witness to someone in your life? Again, I know it's difficult, it's hard work, but again, this, we're disciples of Christ and we submit to his authority. And so with that in mind, let's pray and ask the Lord's help to help us to be faithful to this call upon all of our lives.